We're in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 17 today. The sermon title is Blessed in Suffering. Blessed in Suffering. 1 Peter. We're preaching right through the book of 1 Peter, and it's been a lot of fun. We're about halfway through, and so far we've covered a lot of ground, and today we're going to get into several passages or several verses. Last week we were in just one verse as we addressed the husbands, and today we're covering some ground. And then next week, we will finish up chapter 3. The Scriptures have a lot to say about blessing, both physical, spiritual, or material. The Scriptures have a lot to say about suffering and God's ability to strengthen us and be with us in the midst of suffering. In the Old Testament, we find out that God blesses His children and His people in both spiritual blessings and material or physical blessings. And that is a thing that's seen throughout the whole Bible However, in the New Testament, primarily when we talk about blessing, primarily, not exclusively, we talk about blessing in the spiritual sense. So the Bible does talk about spiritual and physical blessing. We have to be careful. We all know the error and the ditch that can be the prosperity gospel that just says, if you love Jesus, everything's going to go well for you and you're going to get material blessings and just pray it, believe it, and decree it and you're going to get it kind of thing. And that is a twisting of the truth. That's a lie. We repudiate that kind of stuff here, and you should repudiate that kind of stuff. But we should also repudiate any idea that says that God does not bless his children, because that's, that's a lie. God does bless his children. And he takes care of us both physically, spiritually, and materially. Spiritual blessings in the New Testament are really clear. Uh, salvation from beginning to end, the Bible would describe salvation in the terms of election all the way to glorification as being a spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Another spiritual blessing is that we are indwelled and comforted by the Holy Spirit. So when we become a Christian, the Spirit of God resides within us. And so we have the comfort of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit within us, the great comforter. Another blessing to us is God's Word. We have the Word of God right here in front of us, and the great privilege of living in 2022 is that we have God's Word everywhere around us. God is never silent to us, ever. If we have access to His Word, we have access to His Word. Newsflash, light bulb moment. So we have blessings everywhere. We have the church family. We have friendships, Christian friendships and fellowships in, in particular. We have joy in the Holy Spirit. These are spiritual blessings. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places right now and abiding with us until we go home or Christ returns, every single spiritual blessing, and it is fixed, it is upon us, it's never going anywhere. We have these spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. However, we are not Gnostics in the sense that we only believe in things spiritual. There is a physical universe and we have physical bodies. And so we must recognize beyond spiritual blessings that God also does bless us with physical and material blessings. For instance, things like marriage, things like children, things like gardens, things like harvest or income, things like a full cabinet of food in our home, things like vehicles, things like golf carts, yard carts, or wheelbarrows. Great blessings when they're working in the yard. Blessings. The good that comes from the work of our hands. Progress. We're able to work with our hands, sweat with our brow, and see progress from an hour's work, or two hours work, or eight hours work. What is that other than blessings? These are blessings from God. 
So we have spiritual blessings and we also have physical blessings. However, only some physical blessings are promised to us in this life. Things like food, shelter, clothing. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we're promised these things and they are fixed and certain. Food, shelter, clothing. But even beyond that, we get to see everything that's beyond that, that is physical, that's material, is a blessing from God. What else are we going to call it? What else are we going to call the vehicle that you drove here? It's been a gift from the Lord. Did he owe you that? Of course not. He didn't owe you that. But you had enough money in your bank account to go out and purchase a vehicle to get you from point A to point B. These are blessings as well. So we need to see that and recognize that any good and perfect gift comes from our Heavenly Father. We don't need to be weird and in a ditch somewhere saying that, you know, if you're a Christian, you're going to get a Mercedes. And you might get a Mercedes, but this isn't something that God owes to you. And if you drive a Mercedes, don't feel bad. (laughs) But today, we're going to see something even beyond physical or, or spiritual. We're going to see, and it would be more in line with spiritual blessing. Today, we're going to see how we can be blessed even in the midst of suffering. In the midst of suffering, even when we do the right thing and suffer for it, when we're persecuted for doing the right thing, the Bible tells us that we're still blessed. We're a blessed people. And we're going to see how that works. Go ahead and look with me in verse 8, and we're going to read down through verse 17. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason For the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. First, we're given some general commands and directions on how to live the Christian life. We've been working through the order of the Christian household. We've been working through authority and submission, and we've been seeing that we're all under the authority of God. This is another demonstration of that because we're given commands to the people of God. These commands come from God to people. And the authority is there whether we recognize that authority or not. God has spoken, and when God speaks, his word is authoritative. So we're the ones that are to be malleable. We're the ones that are to say, yes, Lord, your servants are listening. Speak, and then give us the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to obey. So we have clear commands here to the people of God about how we're to live in the midst of the Christian community. How are we to live? Well, first, we are to have unity of mind. Unity of mind. What does unity of mind mean? Well, it means that we are to seek like-mindedness. It doesn't mean that we have to be uniform in everything that we say, think, and believe. It doesn't mean that we have to understand every single doctrine in the scriptures in the exact same way. But the command here is that we pursue that. We pursue unity. 
So uniformity is this weird thing that can happen, and it's like this sociological effect that can happen when you get in a community, especially with a, a, a big leader or a culture where everybody ends up looking and talking and, and saying the exact same things. Uniformity can happen when there's strong leadership and there's charismatic leadership where everybody wants to be like that guy. And so there ends up being uniformity where everybody just says the exact same thing, does the exact same thing, and looks the, it's like Stepford Wives everywhere. Yes, and everything feels plastic and everything feels fake. However, unity is a very good thing and clearly we're to pursue it. So how does unity happen? How does unity in the body of Christ happen? Because we see fractures, we see fissures, we see disunity everywhere. The warning when the Catholics were warning those who were reforming the church, the true church, uh, they were saying, you're just going to splint and fissure and it's never going to end. And so we see unity and fracture everywhere. We see people with differing opinions about many different doctrines. And yet, we, we do see, even within pro Protestantism, a great deal of unity if we can actually see it. So how do we, how do we pursue unity in the local context? Well, here's how we pursue unity. We unify not around a person other than Jesus Christ. We don't unify around anything except God's Word. We unify around the Bible. The Bible brings us unity. And when a group of people are willing, by the grace of God, to say, speak, Lord, your servants are listening, we are then a group of people, a community, that have their minds shaped by God's Word. And when there's disagreements over a piece of Christian doctrine or a Bible verse, we can humbly come together with each other and say, okay, I see how you land there, um, and I'm going to be gracious to you. I see it a little bit differently. But you're going to wrestle through those things together, but you're, you're seeking and your aim is to be unified around the Bible. Not unified around a person, unified around what God has to say in his word. So we want to seek unity in the body of Christ. So the best way to do this is to be submissive to God's word. When there's a group of people in a body, in a, in a group, that wants God's word to submit to their, opi their opinions or their theology or their system or their, or their philosophy, what ends up happening is you end up getting a group of people who can't even talk about the Bible together because they get angry. They can't disagree well because it makes them upset. Because it's a personal offense when you disagree with them. Because they've got their system, they've got the way they think things are to be, and they've got a neat, orderly way of view the, view the Bible, but to them, unity is only agreement with me. But when it comes to the scriptures, we have to all say, listen, I'm the malleable one here. And whatever God's word says, that's where we're firm, that's where we're fixed. This is the anchor to our soul. It's what God has to say. It's his very word. And so I want to submit to God's word. And when we have a group of people that are humbly coming around God's word and saying, God, we want to honor you and obey you, even when we come to different conclusions, there's going to be a humility there because we're going to be able to say, okay, I, I don't agree with that conclusion there, but I see how you got there. I understand. So there's going to be differences on things like gifts of the spirit or things like eschatology. We've talked about that many times using those two, two examples. Those are just two examples of how we're going to see things and maybe see things in a different way. But when we're humbly coming together as God's people and saying, okay, we want to rally around God's word and we want to be humble with one another, then you can have unity of mind because you're unified around the authority of God's word. Unity of mind. This is how the body of Christ seeks to live out the Christian faith. We want to be unified. And so we're not going to slander each other, talk bad about each other, criticize one another, or be offended if somebody sees something a little bit differently than you see what you see in the Word of God. Unity of mind. 
The second command we have is to live sympathetic towards one another. Just one word, sympathy. Have unity of mind, sympathy. Now, uh, Joe Rigney, Dr. Joe Rigney and Douglas Wilson had a great episode on the Amazon Prime TV show, Man Rampant. You can also get this on the, the Canon Plus app. And they talked about the sin of empathy, the sin of empathy. And it was meant to be this almost like a shock jock kind of thing where it gets your attention when you hear the sin of empathy. You're like, wait a minute, I thought empathy was a good thing. And they went on to talk about the difference between sympathy and empathy. And it was a very good distinction and a very important distinction. And in it, they rightly argued that sympathy is the biblical command to God's people. And empathy is a new made-up version, a twisted version of what sympathy actually is. Empathy today, uh, we we're told to be empathetic with everybody and everything. You just got to get in their shoes. You got to understand. You got to be empathetic to where they are. You got to feel their pain. And man, if you actually feel their pain, that's what it means to weep with those who weep. And scripturally, that's incorrect. We're to be sympathetic, not empathetic. Well, what's the difference? Again, those two do a good job describing the difference here. Um, the sympathetic person, as opposed to the empathetic person, the sympathetic person remains firmly fixed on God's word as they are helping somebody that is sinning or walking through a painful situation. So one, the way it was described, and I think it was perfect, I'm not gonna try to make it any better, the way it was described is the person who's being sympathetic to somebody that's, that's dealing with sin or that's walking through something that's difficult, they have one foot right here that's planted firmly on God's word and there's somebody in a pit, and whether that pit be sin or some sort of pain or grief or something like that, they have one foot firmly fixed in God's word, and they have another foot here able to weep with those who weep, and so that one foot is in the pit with them, but they have a hand stretched out, and they want to help them and pull them out of that pit and get them up, against, uh, get them up again on God's word, firmly fixed with two feet. The empathetic person, this new version of this, this twist of sympathy is you have to jump both feet into the pit with them, feel their pain, actually feel it deep down in your soul, and if you can do that, if you get what they get and see what they see, then you'll finally understand their perspective. The problem with that is you lose the footing right here. And the goal for us in the Christian community is not to be empathetic. I don't want to understand somebody's sin and why they're doing it. I could care less. They need to stop doing it. I don't need to be empathetic to somebody in sin. I need to be sympathetic that they are walking in sin and following the, the passions of the flesh, being tempted by the devil. But what I need to do is keep my feet on God's word, one foot here, and I need to say, hey, come. You need to come out of that. You need to walk out of that. Come with me. Sympathy versus empathy. Sympathy is greater. Uh, empathy is kind of like this, uh, um, you know, like it's like the, the twin, the ugly twin sister or something like that. You know, it's like this evil, evil thing that's happening. It's twisted. It's not the real deal. And the, the weird thing is if, if uh, you know, people would say, what's better, empathy or sympathy? And they'd say, well, of course, sympathy. But the Bible calls us to be, or they would say, of course, empathy. And the Bible calls us to be sympathetic not empathetic. And then we're told we are to walk in brotherly love. Sympathy, brotherly love. The body of Christ is to love one another. We should love each other. This isn't love the institution Christ Church Carbondale. I literally could care less if you even know, like you don't ever hear me say, and even when we, we talk about this church community, this family, I could care less about the name. It makes no difference to me what the name is. I care about you. We love each other. We care about one another. The goal here is not to get you to buy into 
this organization or institution. The goal is that we would love one another as the body of Christ. What we're, Jesus is the head of the church, and there's a bunch of people all over the place gathering as God's people throughout this, throughout this globe and throughout this country, throughout this state and region, and some are in less and less faithful churches or better and more healthier churches, but there are brothers and sisters in Christ. And what we want you to do is to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. We want you to love this church community. We, we have come together as members of this body here, and we are to love one another, brotherly love. How do, how do you love your, fam, your, your family? That's the micro. The macro is here. Uh, how do you love each other as family? You know, sometimes you are going to be frustrated with one another. Sometimes brothers are frustrated with one another, Right. Uh, brothers can fight and, and, and wrestle and get upset with one another and call each other names, um, but nobody else better mess with my brother. You know, I don't have a brother, but that's how brothers are. Because you love each other. You care for one another, and, uh, and that's how we're to be. We're to love one another. We're to get through the difficulties that we may have because we love each other as family. And so here, I, I love this because honestly, these commands, these, these commands here we're looking at here, I think our church family does a really good job with this. Uh, you guys, I mean, I love you. I, I think you guys love one another. And what's neat to see is through the week, I see people texting and calling and hanging out and spending time together. And, and so it's a pretty cool thing to see that. Brotherly love. We're to love one another. We're also to have a tender heart, a tender heart. Brotherly love, and what else does it say? A tender heart and a humble mind, tender heart. We are not to be hard-hearted toward one another, harsh with one another. Well, you don't agree with me, you jerk. That, we're, we're not to be harsh with one another, tender-hearted, because we love one another. If we love one another, that should be expressed and demonstrated by a posture to one another. We love one another. We, we are tender in heart. Uh, we have lion hearts. We have courage. We have Jesus as both the lion and the lamb, and we know the appropriate place to express both of those. But there's a tenderness about the people of God towards each other. There should be anyways. And instead of the opposite, vindictive, angry, harsh kind of scene that we've all probably experienced at some point or another, in the body of Christ, the command is don't, don't do that. Be tender to one another, kind to one another. Again, not, not a weird... Uh, vapid niceness that's like Stepford Wives, but a real tenderness toward one another. We love each other. And then a humbled mind, a humble mind, humility. Proud men think that they're smarter than everybody else. Proud women think that they are smarter than everybody else. And that's why they get offended when people don't agree with them in a community. They just, they think they're smarter. They're proud. Here, we're called to have a humble mind. It's and a humble mind. Commands for God's people, how to live. Live with humility. Don't be proud. Don't be arrogant. Where are you arrogant in your life? What are the areas of your life that you want attention? Some of these things can be good to help diagnose where you are proud. What do you hope people find out about you? What do you... Uh, Dave Harvey used to say, when you get done preaching, preachers will do this, and I've had to work on this over the years, where you fish for comments. Like, it's like you throw something out there to, to get something back. So, you know, was it a good sermon? How, how did it, how it was received? Uh, you know, is anybody upset? That's this kind of thing. So you, you go fishing, and you go fishing for comments, and you try to find the, the most humble way that you can do that, but it really, it's, you're, it's, a, seek, it's a seeking after approval. You want, you want approval. You want to see how that landed, how do people respond or react? In the Christian community, instead of being prideful like the devil, 
like those who are living in the flesh, we want to be humble of mind. And so you can be convictional, you can have courage and walk in humility. We see that all through the scriptures of people who have courage, people that are willing to die for the truth, and yet walk in humility. Uh, this is how churches live. Healthy churches live like this. This is how we follow the Lord, that we obey the commandments that are given to us. Uh, we don't have to let everybody know how smart we are. We don't have to let everybody know how humble we are. And uh, there's a sneak, there's pride is sneaky, right? Because you can uh, seek after the praise for your own humility. I hope they're recognizing how humble I am because of all the preachers I know, I'm the most humble. Thank you, Rick. You were picking up what I was laying down, brother. But in that, the twisted nature of pride, yeah, I, just, I wanted to be known for humility, you know, those kind of things. So we need to stop that bad behavior because in healthy environments, churches obey these commands and they walk out in this. You have the Holy Spirit of God. We can obey these commandments with the Lord's help. I mean, as God's people, we are now free to obey. We're not bound to disobey the rest of our lives. The power of sin has been broken, so we can foster these kind of things in, in, a, in a Christian community and obey and live like this. And when we do, things go really, really well. So is there any area that you're struggling in this list? Okay, repent of those. Turn to Jesus. Ask for the Lord's help and walk in obedience. Healthy churches live like that. Unhealthy churches, however, refuse to obey commandments like these, and they end up being a very unhealthy group of people. And unfortunately, within God's people, to be as gracious as we possibly can, within the body of Christ, there are healthier and unhealthier churches. There are healthier environments of a group of people who are humbly coming to God's word and wanting to obey, and then there are unhealthy environments where nobody cares what God has to say at all. They're doing whatever feels right in their own eyes, basically. And so in that community, nobody holds each other accountable. Nobody's actually trying to obey the Lord. And there are communities of people like that that call themselves Christian communities. And so when people refuse to obey, it ends up becoming this really vindictive, angry, gossipy, slandering place where nobody can talk to one another. Everybody's walking on eggshells all the, all the time, wondering who's being offended, who's not being offended. And unfortunately, Christians behave badly. So how do we stop this bad behavior? Look at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. Bad behavior is perpetuated when it's repaid with bad behavior. So in an environment that puts a stop to bad behavior, reviling isn't repaid with reviling. Healthy communities, a healthy body of Christ will hear somebody slandering, and the slanderer will feel awkward because nobody does that in, that in that group of people. The gossiper doesn't get met with gossip back. Instead, they're like, hey, wait a minute. Why are you gossiping right now? This, have you talked to that person? I don't need to hear this anymore. And that slander or that gossip gets addressed, and that person, that kind of behavior is corrected because it's not met with that same kind of behavior. When reviling happens in the body of Christ, when you just revile right back, what ends up happening is that sinful behavior just gets perpetuated. How does it end? You bless that person that's reviling you. Somebody's upset with you. You hear somebody's got an issue with you. Go to that person, deal with it, and don't repay evil with evil, but instead bless those who are doing evil to you. For this, we were called. There's a blessing that's promised in this. When we 
correct that kind of behavior by not perpetuating that kind of behavior, there is a blessing there. When others are reviling you and you bless them, you are blessed, and you bless them, you are blessed by God. This is what we're called to. Now, we already have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that's always and forever with us. However, when we obey like this, there is this extra blessing of the Lord that comes upon us that we would forfeit if we just jumped in the reviling and the reviling. We've probably all experienced or heard of an experience within a church community where it was like one big wasp nest or like one big snake pit where people were just biting each other and devouring one another and back and forth with each other. And you're thinking, this is, this is not only is this non-Christian behavior, this is like bad junior high behavior. Where if there were junior hires behaving like this, you would bring correction and discipline because it's not even excusable within junior high. But then here they are, adults, behaving like this. And it's inexcusable. So unfortunately, we've seen and maybe even been a part of or maybe even contributed to environments like that that are very unhealthy and that hurt a lot of people. I mean, how many people say like, yeah, I've been hurt by the church? And a lot of people, they need to honestly hear this kind of word because again, the empathy culture, a lot of people who've been hurt by the church, they need to hear, yep, and you've probably hurt some people, but Jesus still loves you and he still loves his people. So I'm sorry for the experience that you've had. I'm sorry that you pain, the pain that you've had, but don't perpetuate that by now dogging the church. Bless them. Don't be embittered and angry. Be tenderhearted towards them. Forgive them. And so we move forward. So we stop bad behavior, and, uh, and we get blessing when we bless those who persecute us. This is a promise from the Lord. So you want to be blessed when you're reviled, then bless them. Bless that person. And God recognizes that, and he sees that. And he rewards, even, that kind of obedience. Now, again, please hear what I am and am not saying. And I don't want to stutter because it just says it right here. This doesn't mean that we obey the Lord so that we will be blessed. So I really, 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 really want this blessing. Therefore, who's reviling me and who can I love so I can get that? This is a consequence of humble obedience. That God, he takes care of us. He's watching over us. We have all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. We have food, clothing, shelter. And when we bless those who persecute us or slander us or talk evil against us, when we don't jump into the snake pit, there's blessing for us. Peter actually gives us a proof text. He goes to Psalm 34, 12 through 16. Look at this. You see it in your, in your Bibles, starting in verse 10. For whoever desires to love life and see good days. Let me just ask this real quick. Does anybody want to love your life? Anybody in here? And I hope we do. Everybody wants to love their life, right? Everyone. Non-Christians, atheists, agnostics. They, they want to love their life. They don't want to hate life and be depressed. and They don't want that. Everybody. That, what about this? Uh, do you want to see good days? Good days. We had a morning, Saturday morning, that was a morning to remember. We woke up and went to Huddle House. Then we went to yard sales, which are amazing. And then we went to pick up two little kittens. And our boys just went nuts over these kittens. I mean, it was just, and they're still loving kittens. In fact, now I've got a new disciplinary measure now. I can spank and I can say, now boys, you want to lose kitten privileges? It's a good day. It was a good day. Went home, mowed. It's just a good day. 
did garden stuff. Got our, this, God, thank you for days like that. It's pretty outside. We want good days. And there's a whole lot more of them than we recognize. Because if we'd open our eyes to see the blessings of the Lord, things that we take for granted, we recognize, oh my goodness, there's good. It's today it's 74 and sunny. I mean, you guys will recognize the sunny here in a minute with that sun, the, the time. It blasts that back corner over there. But it's the Lord's day set aside for worship and prayer and for worship and rest. And you get to rest this afternoon. You get to sit outside, drink some sweet tea, grill something. Gosh, life is good. Are there hard things? Of course there's hard things. But we want to love life and see good days. Then he says this, the psalmist, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There is a principle that's woven in throughout the Bible. It's everywhere. It's about reaping and sowing. And it, these are general principles that, that work themselves out in the, the largest measure. And there are some exceptions that we're going to look at here in just a second where there are times that you, you experience persecution for doing the right thing. You do the right thing, and just like Jeremiah, you end up in a pit and in a cistern in the mud, and you're sitting there thinking, I'm just doing what God told me to do, and I'm sitting here in a cistern. What in the world? There are those exceptions, but generally speaking, things go really well when you obey the Lord. Like when you obey and honor Him, when you do things according to His principles and precepts, when you seek to avoid evil and move away from evil and do the right thing, this is not karma, this is the, the principles of sowing and reaping that we see woven throughout the, the tapestry of God's Word. And so we want to obey. The proof text is, if you want to seek the good life, if you want to love life and see good days, keep your tongue from evil and your, and your lips from speaking deceit. Away from that, away from the body of Christ for that kind of behavior. Let's just put that away. Walk away from evil and walk toward the good. We want to obey. We want to be obedient people. And we're told that we're to seek peace and pursue it. Do the right thing. Seek peace. Pursue it. Where discord comes... Okay, stand against that. Fight for peace. That's why the government needs to stand down, by the way. Like sidebar here. We want to seek peace. And that means taking a stand for peace. The Bible says that only the righteous have the ear of God. Non-Christians don't have promises that God will hear their prayers. It says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayer. For God's people, we have promises that non-Christians just don't have. God's wrath is upon non-Christians. God's blessing and favor is upon his, his people, His children. His eyes are upon them. His ears are open to them. You have access to the ear of God. And His eyes are always upon you. The non-Christian doesn't have any of those promises at all. And yet we have these great blessings. God sees what you're going through. God knows what you're going through. When you're walking through seasons of God-ordained difficulty... And yet He is blessing you and with you in that. It says that God is for the Christian. Blessing comes to that man who's doing right, who's guarding his lips and his words. And we're told that God is against the non-Christian, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. These categories here, the righteous and the evil, Christians, non-Christians, children of God, children of the devil. Non-Christians, God is against you in this moment. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. But the way you are living in the end will reap destruction 
And you cannot expect the blessing of God upon disobedience, discord, and evil. He's against that. And apart from turning from your sin and trusting Christ, you can never in your whole life say that God is for me. God is for His people. Repent of your sins and trust in Him. Because you cannot keep living the way you're living and expect the blessing of the Lord. He is against you and against that way of living. Repent and trust in Him. And so, knowing this, it should help us continue to obey the Lord. If there's blessing for obedience and we want to obey the Lord and He's been so gracious to us, well then we should want to obey. We have this proof text right here about His eye being upon us and His ears being open to us. And if His eye is on us and His ears are open to us, then we should even more want to obey. Then yes, He's my Heavenly Father. His eyes are fixed on me. He rules the universe, not just the Milky Way galaxy, but the whole universe is in the palm of His hands and functions according to His very decree. And yet we're told, me... Of 1.75 billion or 7.5 billion people in this world, of 370 million people in this country, of however many million in the state of Illinois, the numbers that are just mind blowing. And yet I'm told, and every Christian in here is told that personally his eye is on the righteous and his ears are open to them. These are precious and personal promises for us. And so it should invoke in us, invoke call us out to something. It should call us out and it should inspire zeal, passion. Look at verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Now we get these two words, suffering and blessed. But first we get zeal for good. If you are zealous for what is right, That's just everybody in here. Zeal for what's right. We want to obey. We want to do the right thing. We want to even loan the shirt off our back if it means loaning the shirt off our back. And we want to do it not just to get an attaboy, but we want to do it because we like we want to love people. We want we care for people. We want we want God's purposes to go forward. And so we have the zeal for doing the right thing. We want to obey these commandments. And generally speaking, if we have the zeal for what is right and good, who is there that's going to harm you? If you're doing the right thing, if you're taking care and you're being responsible, then generally speaking, that, that's going to be that's going to be true. Who's going to be there to harm you or speak evil against you? And yet Peter gives us insight, but there are going to be times that you're going to do the right thing and still you're going to have this opposition. In this world you will have trouble. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Um, it has been granted to you not only believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but to suffer for his sake. So even in the midst of having zeal for what is good, working hard, being generous, giving to the poor, taking care of your family, taking care of the generations, yet at times, even in that zeal for what's good, we will suffer for righteousness' sake. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, there's a connection here, not just to general suffering, but specifically suffering at the hands of other people. Because in verse 14, 13, it says, now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? This is about a person harming you, a person that's bringing harm to you. So this isn't just the category of general suffering, of even things like sickness and things that are just unexplained, loss of job or something like that. This is specifically like somebody's going to harm you for doing what's right. Who is there to harm you? And then, verse 14, we're talking about like people harming you. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer, so that means somebody coming and bringing harm to you, 
lashings, beating you up, suffering physically for righteousness' sake, then we're told you will be blessed. So what are we to do then if we, like Jeremiah, face suffering or persecution like this? What are we to do? And it's a possibility. We've seen this. We've seen this in, in Canada. We see it around the world. Uh, the, the Christian church has suffered, and globally we suffer, and there's, there's martyrs to this day. Uh, in fact, you hear these reports about these, these numbers are just astronomically high of martyrs around the world every single year, Christian martyrs who have these stories that aren't just these mythical stories. They're, they're real deal, where it's recant your faith in Christ, convert to Islam, or die. And these faithful brothers and sisters around the world are saying, give me death. Just like Polycarp. How, how could I renounce my Savior who's been kind to me these 86 years or whatever he said it, or 80-something, whatever. You know, okay, death. Or, you know, people like the Wormbrand family. Well, I can't always get their name, name mixed up, but those that behind the voice of the martyrs where there's persecution that's coming. And his wife was telling her husband, you know, you, you got to stand for the truth here. And she, he said, you realize if, you make, if I make a stand, I, I will be killed. And she said, I'd rather be married to a dead man than a coward. Like faithful, faithful brothers and sisters suffering, persecuted. So what happens if you end up like Jeremiah in the pit? You're doing the right thing, and yet they still persecute you. What do we do? How can we be prepared? It says that we're blessed in that. Um, look at verse 14. We see one promise and we see five commands. One promise and five commands. What do we do in that situation? How do we get blessed even in the midst of suffering? First, we have to see that we are blessed. That's the promise. Verse 14b, you will be blessed. Number one promise is, if you suffer at the hands of wicked people, you will be blessed. That's a promise. There is no Christian who's ever died a martyr that did not die a blessed death. Not one. There is nobody that suffered at the hands of evil people as a Christian that has not been blessed by God. I don't exactly know what that blessing is. I don't know if that's uh, God just giving them the supernatural strength they need to walk through that. But what we have here is an absolute promise to us that you, nobody can lay a hand on you apart from them laying a hand on you and you being blessed by God. It's a promise. So if you suffer persecution, death, if you get thrown to the lion's den, you will be blessed. It's a promise. It's sure and certain. As certainly as your sins are forgiven, as surely as that is true, it is just as much true that every persecuted saint is blessed by God. But then we have five commands, and I love this. Look at this. You will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have no, we're going to get five commands. Here's two of them right here. Verse two. Have no fear of them. We don't fear mortal men. We do not fear mortal men. Christians are commanded right here and through the Holy Spirit, let's obey this. We're not afraid of anybody. You want to lay your hands on me? Big whoop. I'm not scared of you. This is our posture. We don't, we're not afraid of threats that come to us of violence. If there's ever a point where we're threatened with jail, we will not fear them. We're not afraid of anybody on this earth. There's nobody that makes me and there's nobody that makes you tremble as you stand in their presence. They put their pants on one leg at a time like you do. And they are made in the image of God, but they are not God. 
no matter how much power or delegated authority that they have under God's law, if they come at you and they want to persecute you and they want to do whatever kind of vile, evil thing against you, you will not fear them and neither will I. And through the help of the Holy Spirit, may it be, do not fear them. Even if they torture us, we will not be afraid of them. What is the scene in the end of Braveheart, William Wallace, where he cries out, freedom, Remember that? He wants to speak, and you're thinking, Kenny, he has his guts are all laid out everywhere. Can he really scream like that? Does he have words? His diaphragm's probably ripped out. How's he screaming? But, you know, I'm wondering these things. Is He's laying on that deal, and, you know, it's like this graphic scene where he's getting tortured, and you're like, oh, my goodness, give him mercy. And then, Will, you know, uh, not Will Smith, uh, Mel Gibson, that's totally two different actors. Uh, Mel Gibson cries out, freedom, you know, William Wallace. And, you know, every guy's like, yeah, freedom. You know, where's some tyrants I can stand against? And uh, it pulls out something inside of, of you. Or gladiator, you know, like, are you not entertained? Or he stands and turns. There's this, these scenes where, listen, you can come at me, I'm not going to be afraid of you. You know, Maximum Meridius, I would have Andy do it. He can do it so well. Where, where, uh, where Maximus stands at Commodus at the end, and he turns his back on him, and he turns back. Jordan's never seen Gladiator. We've got to see Gladiator. Right. So we're going to watch it together. So... Um, but anyways, you have these scenes where, where it's like, okay, the, there's no, like, no fear here. Like, no fear. Do your worst. You know, I, I'm blessed. You know, you, you cause me to bleed, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm God's man. You're God's man. You're God's woman. And if anything comes your way via persecution, you're a blessed man or woman. Don't fear them. My goodness, we have a lot of people that are terrified. And Christian community has this opportunity to just not be afraid. Don't be afraid. We're not people of fear. It says don't be troubled. Not only don't be feared, don't even be troubled. Like, this, is a, this is a command that hits me because in the tumultuous times that we live in, isn't it easy to be troubled? You know, like, it's troubling to see. Clown world is troubling. It really is. You look at it and you're like, this can't get crazier. And then the next week rolls around and you're like, that's crazier. And then the next week rolls around, that's crazier. Like Disney has been grooming people for, it's, it's crazy, it's evil. And uh, there's people that are saying a lot of things about Christians. Like we live in this, what's called, Aaron Rand calls it the negative world, where it used to, to be a Christian, you put a Jesus fish on your, on your vehicle in the positive world, that was seen as a good thing. You, you can get business. Oh, they're a Christian person. They're seen as an ethical person. In the neutral world, Aaron Wren talks about how the, the Jesus fish and the Christian identity in, in the public square is seen as just this neutral thing. It's not positive, not negative. And what the argument is now is we live in the negative world. To be viewed as a Christian in the public square doesn't give you brownie points. It actually, you actually are being villainized. We're being villainized in American society as Christians. It's this negative world where if you're viewed as a Christian, you're viewed in the, in the negative now, are there pockets of, of places where that's maybe not the case? But generally speaking, just turn on the, the news. There's a, is there great things to say about Christians who believe that marriage is between... By the way, I don't know if you know this. June is the uh, Healthy Christian Family Month. June is men and women are the only people to get married month. Okay, you get what, what evil people try to twist June. I was thinking about getting a shirt that says the, the Christian Family month in June and just wear that everywhere for the whole month of June. See how that goes? Or show up to the 
gay pride parade wearing that shirt? It's Christian Family Month. All right, don't be troubled. If you're persecuted for doing the right thing, just don't be troubled about it. Don't let the anger of somebody else dictate your conscience. Well, they're upset with me. They're angry with me. What we believe is offensive to a world, and our witness seems to be going down the drain. So, don't let that trouble you. You have the eye of God upon you and the ear of God open to you. Why does it matter what they are saying about you? So don't be troubled. We're told to honor Jesus as holy. Don't be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Jesus Christ the Lord as holy. The people of God recognize the holiness of Christ. I've been challenged recently thinking about, even when we come together on this Sunday morning, uh, we, we, have, we, we have generally a good time when we come together. We, we laugh. You know, there's things that are personal. It feels like family here. But in our laughter and, and even, I don't want to, this is a serious thing when we hear from God, when we hear from the Lord. And in our hearts, we need to be prepared now in recognizing Jesus as holy. Because we're going to walk through difficult things in this life. And when we're walking through difficult things, if persecutions come, we have to remember that Jesus is holy and I will not dishonor my Lord no matter what they do to me. And in my heart, I want to recognize, which literally means just talking to yourself, Jesus, you are holy. I want to recognize internally, you don't even have to vocalize it, that Jesus, you are holy and you are altogether other and you have saved me and I trust you and I loved you. I love you and I know all things are in your hands, even me. And so in our hearts, the command is, honor Christ, the Lord is holy. Then we're told, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. Prepared to make a defense. Now, the word defense is apologia. This is where apologia radio, apologia ministries gets their, their term. And this is the big passage about apologetics. Christian apologetics. We, we are not apologizing for the fact that we're Christians. We are defending the Christian faith. That's where the, this verse is where the apologetics discipline comes from. We want to be prepared to make a defense when people ask, what is this hope? Now, this is talking about in the context of persecution, and we could, we could even broaden this out in suffering, when Christians are not afraid of those persecuting them, when they're not troubled about being persecuted, it stands out. It's like Shaq playing basketball against a, a group of Oompa Loompas. Like, Shaq stands out, Right? So we, when we're not troubled and not afraid, knowing and honoring Christ as holy, knowing that his eye is upon us and his ear is open to us, people are like, how are you not troubled, man? How are you not troubled? How do you have this peace? We think, well, would I have that peace? Would I have that? And the answer is yes, God would give that to you. God, God does this supernaturally. Anybody who has peace in the midst of a persecution storm has peace because the Holy Spirit is working that peace in them, not because they have that strength in and of themselves. Don't underestimate what God can do in you in times of difficulty when you wonder what you would do. Well, would I be faithful? Would I not be faithful? Okay, it's not about the, the question is, is God faithful? And if he is, he will sustain his people. Apologia, be ready to make a defense. We must be ready. People see the hope that we have in the midst of unhopeful circumstances, which is why right now in this world, we're like, okay, we're, should we just join on the negative bandwagon? And the answer is no, we shouldn't. We're optimistic. Christians are optimistic. We're not pessimistic people. 
We know the direction of this world. We know God is working. We know the devil is lost already. Like we are optimistic people. So we don't join the pessimistic banter that goes back and forth. It's like pessimism back and forth tennis. It's like you be pessimistic about the crazy world. And guys, these are things that I've got to work on as well. As I mentioned last week, you know, the things about being a husband, it's not like that I've arrived here. These are things that I'm walking towards as well. But we got to get out of that verbal tennis of they're crazy, they're crazy, this is insane, yeah, Disney's insane, yes, uh, all, all that kind of stuff. You get that? Right. We get out of that and we say, okay, yes, but how do we build? How do we become the people of God? How do we obey? How do we enjoy the good life that God has given us? How do we enjoy the, 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 the gifts that God has laid in our lap? How do we enjoy our church family? How do we proclaim to the world, hey, listen, there's good news here. Turn that TV off. COVID disappears. And then all the craziness disappears. And you can actually get to some real and good work. Being a community of people who love Jesus and want to see his kingdom built in their midst and let's build something together. Let's watch God work in our midst. We are not pessimistic. We have hope. And so when people see a group of people or a community of people living like this, and they're like, man, that's interesting. You guys seem to be a joyful bunch. You guys seem to, things seem to be going together. This isn't a, a gossipy snake pit. You're like, yeah, hey, let me tell you about it. God's great. He's been kind to us. We love God. We, we love his people, and we want to honor him. So, hey, let, let's do that together. Let's build. Everybody else is tearing down. Christians here are building as God builds in their midst. Be prepared to make a defense. This is our Father's world. And oh, the wrong seems oft so strong. It is our Father's yet. You know, this is our Father's world, the song. It's such a great song. We're to make this defense with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Look at it. Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks, yet do it with gentleness and respect. There's a big difference between being an offensive person and the truth offending a person. We do not want to be boisterous, annoying, loud, offensive people. When people ask us about the joy and the hope that we have, we turn to them with gentleness and respect and the manner of our defense. This is what the people of God believe. This is what the people of God do. This is why this worldview, the scriptural authority is authoritative over your life, whether you recognize it or not. Bow to King Jesus. He'll forgive your sins and cleanse you of all your unrighteousness and then give you the Holy Spirit. And as we talk to them about these things, we do it with gentleness and respect. When we tell people about Jesus, we do it with gentleness and respect. There is a time and a place for everything. And when it comes to times of evangelism in the midst of persecution, gentleness is required. It's required. Why? Because we don't repay evil for evil. We don't revile when reviled. Um, when we suffer like this, we can have a clean conscience. When we're gentle and respectful, as they're asking for the hope, we do it and we can have a clean conscience. Is what it says. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. When people respond, when, when you have a clear conscience before you, you can walk out of a situation with your head held high. By the grace of God, I've been able to walk out of situations before Jordan and I that were really ugly and really terrible. And with the Lord's help, we walked out with our head held high and a clean conscience, knowing that as far as it was determined by us, we were trying to live at peace with all men. And believe it or not, some people don't like me. What's wrong with people, right? 
Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. <laughs> I got a big one, Rick. Uh, shame on them. If we behave in a godly manner, others get put to shame because they're behaving in a way that's distasteful, that's sinful, that's silly. Uh, it would be obvious to those who are observing who's in the right and who's in the wrong. And yet, we get these concluding words, there's going to be times that we're going to suffer according to God's will. For it's better to suffer for doing good than it should be, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. When we suffer for sin or disobedience, it, it's a consequence for sin. But there are going to be times that we do the right thing, and it's not a consequence for sin. Somehow or another, it fits within the will of God, the secret will of God, that we should suffer in these ways. Those who have died martyrs' death were not outside of the sovereign and the secret will of God. Those who were killing them were outside of the moral will of God. They were violating God's moral law. But there's no person in the history of the world that has died apart from the time determined by God for them to die. Not one. Down to the millisecond. Here, we're told, if you're going to suffer, may it be for doing the right thing and not doing the wrong thing. This is the, the, the deal between offensive or the truth being offensive. If you're going to suffer, don't let it be because you're ripping people off, because you're a jerk to people, or you've sinned against somebody. Let it be because you're doing the right thing and people hate that. If you're going to suffer, if you're going to be persecuted in this manner, may it be because you won't renounce your faith. Because you're, you're going to say, he's been so kind to me. How could, I, how could I turn my back on my Savior? And so if in that moment your life is taken, if you suffer and experience persecution, in God's secret plan, somehow that's for your good. And it's his will for you. It's his secret will for you in those moments. I don't know how he's working that for our good. But these are precious promises that we have. And for people around the world, as they're hearing these passages, as they're scared that if, right now, they're not scared because they're, they're not troubled. But as they're having persecution outside the walls of, of their gathering place around this world with the real cost of their life, they're gathered together. These, these, things, these things are like immediately impactful. Okay, I, I, I'm going to possibly walk out these doors and be arrested according to God's secret will here and it's going to be for my blessing and my good. But don't let yourself suffer for doing evil. If you do the right thing like Jeremiah, you might end up in the pit. And if you are in the pit for doing the right thing, talk about honor. Talk about glory. Talk about a community of people who see God working in your life and say, that is is honorable. That is a man I trust. That's a man I respect who will not bend in the moment he was required or asked to bend. That is a woman of resolve with backbone. That is what we want to be like. Amen. I would rather be in the pit than in the palace if that's God's will for me. I don't want to avoid a pit out of fear. But, 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 um, some would say, well, God would never want that for you. God would never, ever will anything like that for you. Really? 
How about Jesus? Or the apostles? How about the blood of the martyrs? To, to know Jesus is to be owned by him. Say, God, use me as you see fit. At cost to myself. Did Jesus not walk the road marked out to him by his father? In the same way, every good father builds character in their children by requiring them to walk through challenges and difficulties. I mean, this is an easy, easy metaphor, right? It's an easy connection or analogy. Earthly fathers give good gifts to their children, and they also give challenges to their children because they don't want their children to be rotten. Of course you require them to do things that are difficult because you're building their character. Of course there's going to be times that I will my sons to do things that they don't want to do and for my daughter. But for Christians, suffering is never punitive from God. Every Christian can know this. Um, we have to, as Spurgeon says, kiss the wave that throws us against the rock, Jesus being the rock. And there's going to be times that we go through difficulty, even persecution. And it's never punitive. It's never God's wrath. But it's always corrective and it's always training for building us up. And no matter what the enemy throws our way, we can know whatever comes my way is for my good no matter what. No matter what, it's for my good. I mean, we're God's. All of this turns our attention to Jesus, which is where we're going to start next week and we're going to end this week. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. As we think about those who have honored the Lord while suffering for doing what's right, we think about Jesus. Jesus suffered for doing the right thing. And He did it in the place of real sinners. He obeyed and was treated like a sinner. He was despised and rejected, yet He obeyed His heavenly Father without the fear of men. This is how we can be blessed even in suffering. Because of Christ and what He has done for us, no matter what we go through, no matter what we will go through, no matter what we have gone through, if we know Christ, Christ will never leave us, nor will He ever forsake us. You've heard me say it several times. I'll say it again. Because Christ was forsaken, you will never be forsaken. Let's pray.